Hello, I'm Toby Haydoke, and my interviewee this time is definitely going to keep you in the picture. view of the river is gorgeous where we are and I'm outside a pub rather than inside because it's a sunny day uh, and I've met with a gentleman who from the picture you may think is the director Christopher Barry and I don't think it would be the first time he's been mistaken for such but he's not so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. My name is Roger Bunce and I'm a BBC cameraman for many many years 46 years I think in total and worked on many many Doctor Who's and I'm a fan of Doctor Who, and my son is an even greater fan of Doctor Who. Um, shall I launch into a story at this Go point? Go on, then. Hit yes. me with the story. <laughs> right. One of the nice things about being a cameraman at TV Centre is you get to take your family around. Um, and, and, of course, it's a bit of a revelation when they see how things are really done. The first reaction is normally, oh, my God, it's much cheaper and tattier than I thought it was. Um, and the second revelation is, oh, it's much cheaper than I thought it was. Um, and my daughter, of course, did the classic thing when she was about five. She ran up to the TARDIS, flung open the doors, and then this look of disappointment. Where are the control panels? Why isn't there? And somehow we have managed to convince the viewing public the TARDIS is genuinely bigger on the inside, which, in case you haven't guessed, <laughs> am, I, am I spoiling the Father Christmas bit here? I don't know. <laughs> it's just a black box, kids. Um, and my son, I took him up when he was about five years old, a couple of years earlier, um, and we t- took him to see play school, and all the play school cast came running over to see this little boy and talk to him, and he, he hid behind my legs and wouldn't talk to them. Went into Blue Peter, did the same thing, and then we were walking through the green tea bar, one of the assembly areas at TV Centre, and there in front of us is Tom Baker in the floppy hat and the long scarf, and my son just abandoned me and ran up to him as though he was an old friend. And Tom was wonderful. He said, hello, young man, what's your name? Wobbin Bunce, he cries. <laughs> um, and Tom said, would you like a jelly baby? So we ate this jelly baby. My son is now a Cambridge academic. He has contributed to the learned work Doctor Who and Philosophy, which I have with me. Um, he delivered um, a speech at the Cambridge Festival Ideas. It was the best attended speech there, which was also called Doctor Who and Philosophy, from the time machine to the TARDIS. So I suspect there was something in that jelly baby. <laughs> I think they definitely did something with it and tampered with it. And you say you're a fan as well, so what do you think it is about the show that's inspired your son into academia when the reason I'm doing this and my job is absolutely down to Doctor Who? What is it about the show? I think it's the versatility. You take one lone character, he can go anywhere in time and space, and so you... Your horizons are unlimited. You can, you can make any story you like and make it relevant to Doctor Who. In fact, I rather get annoyed when he has too many companions and, and there are too many backstories associated with his companions. I don't like that. In fact, I'm rather annoyed that they ever revealed he came from Gallifrey. I liked him just staying a mystery, you know. We, we're not supposed to know who he is or where he comes from or anything like that. So 
So I get a bit cross when they try and explain things that I like to be unexplained. And of course, when you first worked on the show, the word Gallifrey was not even a figment of anyone's imagination because we were trying to work it out. You suspect The Massacre, directed by Paddy Russell, was your first. Yes, that, that was definitely my first. I can only really remember things like which camera crew it was and who the camera supervisor was. It was John Lindsay crew. For 11, I think the number was. <laughs> That's gone. Um, and did, those... the ca- did the camera supervisor make a difference as to who, who it was in terms of make a difference to the, the quality of the job or your enjoyment of it? Oh, definitely my enjoyment of it. I mean, John Linton, he was, he was the senior camera that really gave me my first serious cameras to do and my first serious tracking jobs to do. So... And he worked a lot with Paddy Russell, who was the director, because his wife, Pam Linton, was Paddy Russell's PA. So that's probably how we came to be involved with that particular series. And what do you remember of Paddy, then? Because she she has quite a formidable reputation. Uh, Yes, she didn't strike me as that formidable, actually. She she struck me as quite pleasant. Um, She actually appears as a a floor manager on the film This Is The BBC. Have you ever seen that? Yes, yes. yes. Yes, I mean... A lot of people have these reputations as being fierce. I mean, Biddy Baxter's the classic, I suppose. But she was always so nice to the crew. Um, the, the cast were in awe of her and dread, I think, some of the time. But she, she just oozed charm at the crew as soon as she saw them. I, th- I think she knew you need to get certain people on your side, you know. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so what would happen if somebody and you don't have to name them, but if somebody didn't get the crew on their side? Oh, I mean, everyone was terribly professional. I mean, you, you'd just... You'd probably cast your eyes to heaven and... <laughs> and, and no, I, I don't think it, it matters. Well, you, you'd get extra out of the crew if you got them on your side. Although, having said that, I'm not sure that even that's true, because half the time you're working for the programme. It's, you want the production to look as good as possible. And sometimes, yes, that means working around the director um, and, and sometimes ignoring things he's told you to do. I, I, I do some lecturing sometimes. And I, I tell my students, your job is to do exactly what the director wants. This may not be what he tells you to do. <laughs> there are things you may not know he wants yet. <laughs> and, t- and so tell me what sort of you know, practicalities you've got. There, there were quite big cameras in those days. Oh, yes. Well, I suppose um, they varied. The first, the black and white cameras, yes, they were big, but they got an awful lot bigger when they went colour and suddenly had three tubes, in the, four tubes inside them rather than the one tube. Um, so the cameras we thought were big turned out to be not quite so big after all. Um, yeah, I mean, it, generally it took four people to carry a camera. Although you could just about get away with two people if you put the camera on a chair for reasons that I've never, reasons of leverage <laughs> that I've never quite worked out. And, <laughs> and d- I mean, d- the, the interesting thing about Doctor Who in the 60s is that an old school director like Mervyn Pinfield has very little camera movement and, you know, just a couple of cuts from yes. one angle to another in the scene. And the younger modern director, the Douglas Camfields of this world and the Michael Fergusons, the camera's moving and fluid. So, did you, did, could you pick up a difference in styles of, of different generations of directors, or is it more different individuals? I think it's individuals, though, though styles do come and go. I, I went to a reunion recently of a, a drama we, we did a long time ago, back in 1975. It was colour by then. 
and it struck me the cameras were moving all the time. I, I, I'd sort of forgotten that. But they were moving in perfect coordination with the actor's movements, if you know what I mean. So an actor just leans slightly and the camera will accommodate to retain the shot. And that was going on continuously. And nowadays, you either get directors who want the cameras absolutely static, they're, they're frightened of them moving, or you get the director who wants the camera on a shoulder and he wants it what, just pointlessly wobbling the whole time. Um, and I can't stand either of those, really. And looking back to what we did in 1975, that was just right. You know, the, the actors and the cameras were in perfect coordination, it seems to me. Well, and the one, um, the story that you certainly said you remember the most of, and I found online, I think your son has written an article about, is Evil of the Daleks. Oh, yes. That's one that sticks in your mind. That's one, yes. Um, things I remember about that are, well, firstly, the, um, the Victorian time machine, which I believe used mirrors and static electricity That's to right. send people through time. It, it was a wonderful piece of design. One member of the crew described it as a gothic bog, <laughs> which is exactly what it looked like, an outside loo designed in Victorian times. And it occurred to me, if they do get rid of the, um, the police telephone box image... A possible alternative these days would be the portaloo, <laughs> because these are things about the same size that you see around a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing, the, the big disappointment of working on Evil of the Daleks is we never got to see the Emperor Dalek, because the Emperor Ealing. Dalek was built at Ealing and the film stages. They, they were generally less employed, so you could build a big thing and leave it standing, and you'd only use it for a few shots. Well, all the acting took place at Studio D Lime Grove, which is where... Doctor was going. It was the same with the Tomb of the Cybermen. The, the Cybermen's tomb, that big facade, which you must have seen, um, that was built at Ealing, and it wasn't there where the actors were. So you don't generally see them in the same shot. I can't remember if they did actually do it. Yeah, any... you only you only have the bottom layer of yes, the tomb. Yes, yes. Uh, Patrick Troughton height. That's it, yes. Taller than that. And I can't remember if the Emperor film. Dalek you actually see with Patrick Troughton. If you do, it's on film, or whether you just see him him there. And then cut to the Emperor Dalek. Ah, well, because we don't, because we don't see, we don't. Have oh, it the doesn't episodes. exist, of course, so we don't know. Yes. But I would guess they wouldn't go to the trouble of erecting it twice. And you're right. So. Oh no, so they, they cut, certainly didn't build it at yeah. Lime Grove. So it was left that they might have wheeled Patrick Tran along to Ealing one day just for On a his scene. day off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, the interesting thing was the major battle at the end in which the Emperor Dalek gets because the the Doctor converts some of the Daleks to become goody yeah. Daleks effectively. And they, they develop these rather sweet, childish voices. They've got the same distort, but I don't know if it was Peter Hawkins or who was doing it, but he gives them a rather childish inflection rather than the normal screaming, almost hysterical tone um, that Dalek voices are usually given. Um, and, yes, and the goodies end up shooting the baddie Daleks, and there's a big inter-Dalek battle. Yeah, massive. And the wide shots in featuring the um, Emperor Dalek are, are done at Ealing with lots of pyrotechnics, but the, the close-ups of exploding Daleks, that was done at D-Lime Grove, and no pyrotechnics were involved. An exploding Dalek consisted of a piece of fishing line attached to the lid of the Dalek, that was yanked, so the lid flew off, and then the poor Dalek operator, who must have been crouching down very low, he had a rubber sack hanging down inside the Dalek, full of goo, which was, I think, coloured wallpaper paste and bits of foam. And then he'd push it up from below so that the whole thing would erupt out and spew down the side of the Daleks as they, as they fell apart. That's brilliant. That's um, just, cause this is one of the most 
keenly felt losses, I think, of Doctor Who yes. that, that final episode of Evil of the Daleks. So this is this is the stuff. <laughs> That's the best description we've had of it, I think. I remember one of the operators climbing out after he'd done his disintegration and covered in slime, and he sort of smacked his lips and said, hmm, not enough sugar. <laughs> <laughs> And he was a good director, Derek Martinez, as well. Yes. So I suspect it looked very, very yes. good. Uh, yes, it may turn up. You never know. <laughs> yeah, it would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> it would be nice. Fingers crossed. And you worked on a lot in that period, because the Tomb of the Cybermen that you mentioned was the yes. story directly after that. That's right, yes. I remember very little about that, other than we didn't get to see the tomb. And, yes. and you went to the BFI and saw it recently. Yes, that's right, yes. How do you think it held up? Quite well, yeah, no, generally very well, I think, yes. Um, I, I have a passion for that period of multi-camera as live drama. You know, if it wasn't actually live, it was shot as though it was live. You did very few retakes. You, well, they couldn't afford the videotape, basically. It co- you, generally speaking, they hired the videotape. If you wanted to edit it, you had to cut it with a razor blade. And that was a complicated business because the soundtrack doesn't run at the same point the picture track runs, so you have to draw a wiggly, ca- a wiggly splice and then join it together. Um, and they didn't like to do that. As soon as you cut it, you, you'd had to pay for the whole tape. Yeah. Um, so they'd sometimes stop and go back to the point where it was all right and start again, what they called a rollback and mix, but they would never actually edit it. So, so it meant that, you know, if it went wrong... At some point, you'd have to do the whole thing or a sizable chunk of it all again. Well, yeah, because, I mean, from your side of it, the camera side of it, there are moments in Doctor Who where a camera will go to do a close-up of a Dalek and thunk against it, or where there's, there's one in a Richard Martin episode where yeah. an ant creature looms at the camera and actually hits it and cuts, and it stays in. Oh, yes. Yes, I mean, the minor things like shadows, you'd often, even if you didn't collide with a Dalek, you'd often see a camera shadow on the Dalek or... Or something like that. Yes, yes, you would generally leave them in unless it was really bad. Even the old boom, you know. I mean, <laughs> there was a view if they noticed that we've lost them, sort yeah. of thing. You know, <laughs> the viewers are watching that sort of thing. Oh, for goodness' sake! Then we're not telling a good story. Well, and a good story that you, I think you said you remembered was um, Douglas Canfield's The Web of Fear with the Yeti in the underground. I just remember the opening scene being so scary. Well, that again was another film. Yes. One that was shot on film, so we yeah. got, we, we, but it was played in in the studio, obviously. So you, these things aren't edited together later; they're all played in together. So um, you get to see them in the studio. He was good at um, atmosphere, Douglas Canfield. Yes, was, yes. He, I mean, he's a director that everybody seems to have thought very, very highly of. Yes, he, he came over as a thoroughly nice person as well. You know, he's just someone you you sort of got on with and t- talked to you reasonably. Some directors will shout. Um, it doesn't achieve much in my experience. It just makes you a bit bad-tempered. <laughs> but, um, no, no, lovely man. And we weren't we weren't sure of this one because, it, but it's the only, Michael Hart only directed one Doctor Who, and that was the Space Pirates. And you think you may have worked on it? I think I may have worked on that. Yes, my, my memory again is watching the film clips coming in on on the monitor as they were played in. And it can't have been long after 2001, A Space Odyssey. Um, 
And, and one of the impression, one of the lasting impressions of that film is, is the way the perspective of, on the spaceships as they slide past cameras. Oh, yes, yes. Um, and it was obviously the video effects department had seen that and were going for it. So even though the spaceship was obviously a fairy liquid bottle with fins on or whatever, they'd taken the camera lens really close to it to try and get that sense of perspective as it went past. Yeah, yeah. They, I think those sequences are... The, they've only yeah. got the one episode of that, but, um, but those sequences do hold up yes. pretty well. Um, but... Um, you have better memories of the Silurians, don't you? The Silurians very much sticks in my mind, yes. Um, they, well, it was the only the second one in colour. I think we probably did the title sequence, the, um, the fir- which would be the first colour video yes. HowlRound titles. Yeah. Because when I first joined the BBC in 1965, um, the first, one of the first things they do is they send you off to Evesham where they've got an engineering training department. And they teach you a lot of engineering stuff that you immediately forget, but also some camera stuff. But they let you play with the toys. So almost the first thing anyone wants to do at that time was to point a camera at a monitor with its own output on it and create the Doctor Who HowlRound effects. And, and as you experiment, you discover all these sorts of things, like if you zoom the camera in, so it more than fills, so the monitor more than fills the picture, then then you get one sort of effect. If you zoom it out a bit, you get another sort of effect where the you know, in one case the HowlRound's bigger than the original image, in the other case it's smaller than the original image, and then you can reverse the scan on either the camera or the monitor, which gives you a mirror image effectively. So every time it goes around the loop, it swaps sides, so you get then get a symmetrical image, and then you can flop the image top to bottom, so you get a four-way symmetrical image. And at one point we managed to create a whirlpool, and I don't know how we did that, because it, it's not classic four-way symmetry, it's rotational symmetry. Um, but we managed to get a, a thing that looked exactly like a whirlpool. And I noticed on on the colour credits they did use a whirlpool image, and I'd love to think I suggested that, but I have no memory at all. Oh, we'll give you the credit for it. We'll give you the credit. But if no one else claims it, I will claim it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it was... The Solarians were shot in Studio One, TC One, the biggest studio at TV Centre, biggest studio in Europe, I think, at the time. Um, and... Yeah, they, they completely filled it with this cave with stalagmites, stalactites. It, it was an incredibly spectacular set. Um, what else do I remember about it? They, the Silurians had a guard dog, which was actually a, a, a Tyrannosaurus rex type right. dinosaur. And this was actually pretty much life size. It, was, it wasn't an animatronic or anything, it was a man inside a latex suit. And the man's name was Bertram, and he was elderly, bald-headed, and he wore ballet pumps and ballet tights. <laughs> and he climbed into this costume, I suppose you call it that, through a hole between his legs. So you can imagine when he came out again, it looked a bit weird, a <laughs> T-Rex giving birth to a, a little old man. <laughs> and... In there, his vision was rather limited, so we had lots of comedy moments of, right, have the dinosaur stride towards camera, and he'd wander off in any old direction, not being too sure where the camera was. Um, So he was often bumping into things, and and we had to redo that several times. Uh, The other comedy aspect, it was one of the weirdest things I've ever seen, I think, he got very hot inside this dinosaur suit. And so the visual effects guys would be standing by with a compressed air bottle, which, when you open the valve, it de- decompresses as it comes out. So it comes out freezing cold like a mist. 
and they would stick this up through the hole and, and squirt some cold air onto him to cool him down. So if you imagine what this looks like to a disinterested observer, there's a dinosaur standing there. Two men come along with a large cylinder, they poke it up a hole between its legs and it goes... <laughs> and when this happens, dear Bertram relaxed a bit, but as a result was the dinosaur's head flopped back and its jaws lolled open. And when a <laughs> compressed air bottle was shoved up between its legs... It was <laughs> oh, I wish I'd been there. <laughs> Robot is all yes. shot on VT. Yes. Including the outside. And so I think some of that was shot at... BBC training for It was. It was shot at Evesham. All the green huts that the, yeah. the robot is striding around. And when he put Sarah Jane on the roof, that, that was the roof of Wood Norton Hall, which was the centre of the BBC's training facility. It's now a hotel, I think. Or it became a hotel, now it's something else. <laughs> so, as, a, as a cameraman, would you be conf- you wouldn't be confined just to studio then? If on, on that, in those days, yes, there were the sort of rigid managerial divides between outside broadcasts and the studio, so I was doing the studio end of Robot. You were, you were stuck indoors? Yes, right. yeah. But of course a lot of the shots were, were composites, because yes. you take the OB, and the robot would be in the studio against the blue screen, and yeah. we'd, we'd bung... Ah, that's another thing about the Silurians, because they used the... Being the first colour one, um, first colour studio one anyway, they, they used an awful lot of green screen. Well, and no, Bertram, it was blue, except Bertram, it was blue screen. Bertram the Sorry. Dinosaur is the first use of CSO in Doctor Who. He is, yes. And, and CSO has become synonymous with 70s Doctor Who, really. Yes, oh yes. I mean, it's, oh. a, it's a curious effect. Barry Letts liked it a lot, but it does... The fringing now means that to... to I mean, I have to say, even as a kid, yes. bad CSO on Doctor Who was a terrible embarrassment to me. Well, yes, you had the same thing in films at the time, of course, because you'd get, when they did match shots, you'd get the outline, wouldn't you? Which was a, a screaming giveaway, and I always preferred BP, because it was... At least you didn't get that outline. You could guess it was BP if it wasn't very well lit, but... <laughs> That BP yeah. is back projection, back projection for those. Back of you. projection, yes, we did lots of that in those days, especially on Z cars. We used to. <laughs> was that in the what, with the rocking car? The and... rocking car, yes, and the <laughs> and the and the wonderful occasion when um, the moving background hadn't stopped. It was still hurtling along, and PC Lynch was due to get out. <laughs> but the PP was still moving, and he just turned to his colleague, don't bother to stop, I'll jump for it. <laughs> really? <laughs> Stepped out of the car, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> it was live, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> That's an actor. That's, that's it's an, an actor act- improvising yeah. on the spot. Yes. <laughs> Bless him. Bless him. <laughs> so, you, so, yeah. So we, uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm leaping about a bit. No, but, no, yes. it's good, it's good. It's not, we don't yeah. have to do chronology or anything. Um, so then uh, after... Oh, you did Paddy Russell again. You did Pyramids of Mars. Pyramids of Mars, yes. Um, again, don't remember terribly much about that, apart from the, the robot mummies had these enormous bosoms for no particular reason that I can think of. And at one point, they actually killed someone crushing in between their bosoms, don't they? Which is... They do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. the way Didn't care for the design of the mummies, that's all. <laughs> the Silurians. I haven't finished the Silurians, sorry. Okay. <laughs> it, it's just that we, we all fell in love with the Silurians. I think that's why we remember them, because they were just such ridiculous shapes. And they had this thing in the middle of the forehead that went boing, 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 and yeah. and could send out a ray that could bore through solid earth, I think, which almost certainly was nicked from invaders from Mars. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, and, and we, one of the sound crew actually dressed up a in with headphones and got him operating a camera and took photos of it and then dressed another one up with a flat cap and a muffler. And <laughs> Every time we went to the canteen, for some reason, we were going boing, 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 and flashing our pretend eye sockets. <laughs> well, yes, it's their third eye. That it's the third eye, that's it, yes, yes. A special third Which eye. the modern Silurians don't seem to have anymore. It's... No. But the sea devils were supposed to be related to the Silurians, I seem to remember. So, no, you, so you could have variants on a theme. You know, sure. just as the human race has produced Neanderthals and Cro-Magnons and sure. Homo erectus, I'm sure the Silurians could <laughs> there are, there, yes. produce variations in the same sort of way. <laughs> just that the old ones were better. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought the old ones were fundamentally ridiculous, which is why I love them, actually. <laughs> Um, the the uh, pyramids that we touched on that was directed by Paddy again. So would, would yes. directors request camera teams? They often did, but I, I suspect that was sheer chance because um, Dave Mutton would be Dave my Mutton. senior cameraman, stroke camera supervisor. I forget which they were called then, but yes. Um, so no, I suspect that would just be coincidence. Yeah, although it was a drama crew. Right. And, and so crews had different um, specialities, did they? Theoretically, anyone could do anything. Um, there, there weren't any sort of restrictions, but, you know, people would develop a reputation for doing a certain sort of work, and then they get asked for to do that work again. So, yes, it, so that crew did specialise a lot in drama, and others would have specialised in light entertainment. And so outside of Doctor Who, then, what sort of stuff did you do most, and what sort of stuff did you enjoy the most? Um, I liked anything with visual effects involved. Um, in fact, when lightweight video cameras first came in, my friend Tim Healy and I went round to... Shall I stop for the plane? Yeah. <laughs> Invading aliens have yeah, just we, arrived. we came outside to avoid the music. I didn't realise uh, <laughs> how, how the air would be thick with them. There was a man, um, a neighbour of the EastEnders lot, who, whenever he realised the BBC was out in the lot, would start mowing his lawn. <laughs> Until someone went round and paid him money. This is a legend, whether it's true, I don't know. <laughs> he had a profitable sideline there. And aeroplanes were things you always had to stop for. It's, <laughs> it's one of the reasons it's a tragedy they're demolishing television centre, because they had the best studios in the world pretty well and you know, anywhere else you go you, you have sort of temporary studios with tin roofs and aeroplane goes by everything has to stop it rains on the tin roof everything has to stop you know television centre you, you just carried on everything worked <laughs> yeah. it was wonderful my thanks to Roger there'll be more from him in a future episode but for now the first of his two charities two episodes two charities uh, is diabetes www.diabetes.com .org.uk Next time is a part two but it's part two of Philip Martin who uh, I interviewed a few episodes ago but because I think it's a shame if it's somebody that we've already had before because there's no new surprise there's a bonus interview at the end of the next episode with a gentleman who sounds a bit like the next voice you'll hear after this one which is mine saying thanks for listening and continue to support this podcast Bye 
I I think when it becomes you know uh, gratuitous uh, in both in both cases, you know, it it, it for me it's it, it, it loses for me it loses its its uh, power. I always feel that uh, everybody has well, many people have very vivid imaginations, and when it comes to violence, I find that in fact showing less is actually more effective. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, Breaking Bubbles and Other Stories. May I ask how you got here? Oh, the usual way. Which is? We landed. In a spaceship? That's right. There's been an internal security breach. Where? Prisoner's cell. It's been locked. What'd you do that? No idea. My jailers have arrived. They don't sound very friendly. Please tell me that doesn't mean they're going to shoot us. I'm terribly sorry. Bomb's through there. Bomb? If I only had some idea what she was talking about. Ah. Did you stop the launch? Afraid not. If I can work out what's wrong with him, maybe I can work out what's wrong with me. Doctor, say something! Oh, no! Doctor! There's a choice coming for all of us. You don't want to pick unwisely. I have made my choices. I'll live with some. Do you still have a drawing of this artifact, at least? Here. This is what the artifact looks like. You. Oh. That's creepy. Hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> My name is not Johnson, in case you're wondering. Okay. It's Michael Andrew Jennings. Oh, right. Madam, prepare yourself for a shock. We intercepted a message beamed from this location. It broadcast on a frequency used by an alien life form which closely resembles... Oh. Did you tell anyone at work about the gnomes? No, Dad, you said not to. Are you trying to break out of my dad's shed? No. Subscribers get more at bigfinish.com.